0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. Listening to the History Extra podcast, brought to you by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Matt Elson. Today we're joined by Vincent Brown, whose book Tacky's Revolt: The Story of an Atlantic Slave War, chronicles the story of an 18th-century revolt by enslaved people that reveals much about the wider slave trade of the time. It's among the books shortlisted for this year's Kindle Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. I caught up with Vincent to find out more. So, your latest book is called Tacky's Revolt, um, which encourages us to see international slavery and its history through a series of really interesting sort of new prisms. Before we get into that, I wondered if you could just really briefly sketch um, what the event of the title is and when it happened.
1: Yeah, so Tacky's Revolt is about the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire, which occurred in Jamaica in 1760 and on into 1761. Uh, And it was, at the time, Jamaica, Britain's most profitable, most militarily significant and best politically connected colony in the Americas, one often thinks of the 13 British colonies in North America that broke away from the British Empire in the American Revolution without remembering that on the eve of the Revolution, Britain actually had 26 colonies in America, and by far the most profitable and politically significant of them were those colonies in the Caribbean, with Jamaica being foremost among them. So this revolt by enslaved Africans at the very heart of the British Empire in America was a Serious event. And it also occurred during the Seven Years' War between Britain and France and eventually Spain, what historians often call the First European World War. It turns out it was a major battle of the Seven Years' War, and yet historians of the Seven Years' War haven't really considered it as being part of that conflict. This despite the fact that many of the soldiers and sailors and marines who fought in other conflicts, more famous conflicts in the Seven Years' War, in Quebec or in Senegal or in Martinique, uh, went directly to Jamaica to suppress Tacky's Revolt in 1760. So it is very much a part of that war, but it's also the outgrowth of various wars in West Africa. And in West Africa, you had uh, many polities that were vying for supremacy over the course of the 18th century. And whenever they would go to war, often supplied by European firearms, British firearms coming in uh, to facilitate the slave trade, whenever those polities in West Africa would go to war, soldiers would be captured, enslaved, sold to the Europeans, and often they came out to the Americas and regrouped even sometimes former enemies coming together because they spoke similar languages or worshiped similar gods or recognized similar kinds of political authority, and they staged revolts against plantation society. So this Tacky's Revolt in Jamaica in 1760 was also one of the largest of those African revolts that were reverberations of conflicts in West Africa. So I call Tacky's Revolt a war within a network of other wars. The Seven Years' War, those wars in Africa, But also, and finally, uh, a a longer, uh, uh, less obvious war that was slavery itself, because slavery was maintained through organized uh, violence and extreme levels of coercion, which many people have called war. Uh, And I am drawing upon that to see that how the Haki's revolt was a revolt against that war of slavery or a battle within that war of slavery, even as it was part of the Seven Years' War and an outgrowth of these various wars in West Africa. Mm. Thank you so much. To unpack some of that a little bit then, um, as well as being
0: a long-running war in itself, to what extent did slavery depend on
1: war in order to continue and survive? One can think about how fundamental warfare was to the development of colonialism in general and to the profits derived from slavery uh, by looking at how the Atlantic system worked uh, for European empires, and especially in this case for the British empire in the course of the 18th century. Now, of course, war and conquest was instrumental to taking territory in the Americas from indigenous groups, from Native Americans, right? War was uh, important for defending that territory from other European powers. So over the course of the 18th century, uh, as we often often discuss, uh, Britain was essentially at war with France for the entire length of that period. uh, And at various times with the Spanish and in the 17th century with the Dutch as well. So war between uh, Europeans and Native Americans, war between European empires themselves, But then also, as I said, in order to staff the plantations that were the source of the greatest profits for European empires in the Americas, uh, they depended on enslaved Africans, many of whom... Uh, almost a majority of whom had been captured either in wars between West African states or had been displaced as a consequence of those wars between West African states. So war was fundamental to making the imperial system go uh, and for generating its profits. What do we know about the title character of your book? And what does that story tell us about this wider picture? Tacky himself remains somewhat of a mysterious figure. He was first described as a leader of this insurrection in 1760, uh, where it started in the parish of St. Mary on the north side of Jamaica. Um, And he was first described in colonial newspapers, uh, and we have uh, evidence from the Philadelphia Gazette that circulated widely, uh, that among the first named leaders were one named Tacky and one named Jamaica. Later on, when we get to the first historian's account of the revolt, and that's Edward Long's account from 1774 as part of his three-volume history of Jamaica, we have Tacky identified as the principal leader, and we have his participation essentially um, governing the entire process. Now, this I think we have reason to suspect because once I did the research to go back and really think more broadly about how Tacky's revolt played out, Tacky himself really only lasted for about nine days of that initial revolt, which went on over the course of a year. There were other leaders, uh, not only Jamaica, who was mentioned in that first newspaper account, but a man named Wager, also known as Opongo, who I spend much more time focusing on, who was a leader of the much larger phase of that slave revolt in Westmoreland Parish, uh, on the western side of the island. So what we know about Tacky himself is that he was uh, an African, that he was working as a driver or a headman on a plantation in St. Mary, uh, and that he was one of the principal early leaders. What I think I've been able to show in this book is that he wasn't the only leader and maybe wasn't the principal leader. So the name Tacky's Revolt is really something that we have from Edward Long and from the subsequent accounts that have followed Long, whereas when one takes a broader look at the insurrection, many more people emerge. And I think even a better name for this would be the Coromanti War. Because most of the people who did lead this revolt uh, were Koromanti peoples. Uh, and they're roughly from what's, uh, what's contemporary Ghana, from the Gold Coast, uh, as it was called at the time, who were speakers of Akan, Ga, and Adanme, uh, and Eve languages. Um, so the Koromanti War, as a much more broader and encompassing name, is something that I think we work towards as we, as we unfold the layers of the revolt. Tacky's revolt in the title of the book, in that way, should kind of be put in in scare quotes. Um, Even though Tacky was an important figure as the first leader of this much larger event, he wasn't the only important leader, and maybe not the most important leader.
0: And what what was slavery like in Jamaica at the time these events unfolded?
1: Brutal. Brutal. Slavery in the West Indies was exceptionally brutal, especially on sugar plantations, which happened to be the most profitable enterprises in the 18th century Atlantic world. Uh, So brutal in fact, uh, and so profitable that it was economically efficient for planters to buy slaves through the transatlantic slave trade, work them to death over the course of seven to 10 years and buy replacements through the transatlantic slave trade. More profitable to do that than to give them enough food and shelter so that they could reproduce because children, uh, who weren't who weren't ready to do the vigorous work of of sugar production for the most part were um were economically inefficient um for sugar planters so wherever you had sugar planting whether this was in Brazil or in Jamaica or in Louisiana or in Saint-Domingue Uh, French Saint-Domingue, which became the territory of Haiti, which became the country of Haiti, which was also the most profitable European colony in the world and was also the most productive sugar plantation colony, that was even more brutal than Jamaica. But of the British American colonies in the Americas, Jamaica was one of the harshest, most unequal, and most brutal societies. Your book really brings home the fact that
0: these enslaved people had often formerly been leaders in African countries before they they
1: became enslaved. Yeah, so that's one of the things that, uh, that I was a little bit surprised by in my explorations. Oftentimes when we think about the history of slavery and slave revolt, we think this is something that happens just between masters and slaves on particular plantations or in particular colonies. But we don't think as readily about the kinds of histories and experiences that people brought with them to the colonies. We tend to think of slaves as really extensions of the master's will, rather than as human beings in a predicament with their own histories and experiences. And one of the things I found uh, in the diary of a plantation overseer named Thomas Thistlewood, who lived through the revolt, was that this one man who I focus on, Wager, also known as Pongo, Uh, had been a military official in West Africa in the 18th century. And Thistlewood writes in his diaries that this man had been accustomed to going to Cape Coast Castle, uh, which was Britain's uh, uh, chief fort on the Gold Coast, and trading with the chief agent there, a man named John Cope Sr. Now, this man, uh, John Cope, himself worked for about five years on the Gold Coast, made himself enough money to buy a plantation in Jamaica where he retired. And then subsequently, Apongo was captured, enslaved, sold to the Europeans and ended up in Jamaica where he again encountered John Cope. And Thistlewood says that John Cope laid out a tablecloth for him for Sunday visits and treated him as a man of honor, even though he was a slave and insinuated that when his master came back to the island, and Apongo, or Wager's master, was a Royal Navy ship captain, that John Cope would have him redeemed and sent home. Now John Cope died in 1756. We know now just a couple of weeks before that Royal Navy ship captain returned to Jamaica, And somewhere in the four years between 1756 and 1760, Wager began plotting uh, and organizing and then executed this largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire. So Wager's story really showed me that there was a whole world of African military leaders that found themselves captive in Jamaica. Uh, And by going through the records, both of the forts in the Gold Coast, but also the ships manifest for Royal Navy warships and then plantation records, we were able to discern that there were lots of people who may have shared uh, Apongo's circumstances who came to Jamaica, which suggests to us that even though Wager might have been an exceptional character, he wasn't alone. There were other exceptional characters like him. And that gives us another perspective on slave revolt that's less about what happens just between masters and slaves and really happens on that geopolitical canvas. It's more about warfare and the shifting kind of networks of soldiering and warfare that made the Atlantic economy run that enslaved Africans were a part of as well. Something else
0: your book does is give agency back to enslaved people and shows that they have the ability to construct and carry out revolts such as this. Um, How did they go about this rebellion
1: and what form did it take? So um, my presumption is that everybody has agency. And then the question is, what do they do with it? Um, what are the constraints, of course, especially on people who are enslaved, but even within those constraints, what are the aspirations that people have, and how do they seek to achieve those desires? So that's the kind of basic premise I start with. Uh, and then once one asks that question, one has to investigate kind of all the various possibilities uh, that people are presented with, and of course, all of the various constraints uh, that shape their predicament. So thinking about uh, Africans as people who had been at war or been subject to war in West Africa even before they became enslaved, necessarily drew me to wanna think about what that context was, what the history was that they brought with them. And in that way, West African history becomes a fundamental part of the history of the Caribbean, therefore a fundamental part of the history of the British Empire and the Atlantic world. How did the rebellion unfold? So we know that the rebellion started uh, in April of 1760 in the northern parish of St. Mary, which was an outlying parish but subject to active and intensive sugar cultivation, and had been importing uh, African slaves at a fairly rapid clip to clear land and do the early work uh, of, of, of initiating sugar cultivation. So it was a high concentration of Africans imported directly from the West African coast. This was the context in which the revolt emerged. It played out over the next couple of weeks from April 8th, April 7th, 8th, uh, 1760, uh, through the next two weeks as Africans moved moved up the main roads of the parish, burning plantations as they went, uh, and trying through those signals of burning plantations to call other Africans to their, to their side. Uh, and that's when the British mobilized the counterinsurgency. First, the militia, which was always drilled uh, and ready, but rarely, fairly effect, rarely effective against uh, uh, massive slave uprisings. So the militia lost, actually, uh, its first encounters with the enslaved, um, but that gave the British time to send in uh, Royal Army uh, uh, soldiers, uh, British Army soldiers, and to swing ships around from, uh, from Port Royal uh, to the bays on the north side so they could provide support, arms, munition, food, to the soldiers fighting in the interior. What they also did, and this is crucial, was they called up Maroon allies. And this requires us to go back a little bit. The Maroons were people who had been uh, escaped slaves, who had fought for their liberation in earlier periods, and through the 1730s, in fact, had fought a protracted war with the British, um, which was so effective that the British did not know they'd be able to keep the colony. They didn't think they would be able to keep the island. So in 1739, they signed treaties with the Maroons that secured independence for them, but also obliged the Maroons to police future slave revolts, which in the case of Tacky's revolt, they did. So the British called up these Maroons to supplement the British Army, the Royal Navy, and the militia. And together, these counterinsurgency forces were able to suppress the revolt in St. Mary. But not before we had outbreaks in other places, including a revolt that happened at the end of May in Westmoreland Parish, which turned out to have lasted much longer than the revolt in St. Mary and extended from Westmoreland all the way across the parish of St. Elizabeth and into the neighbouring parish of Clarendon before it was finally suppressed in 1761. So
0: did what we know as, as Tacky's revolt inspire these other rebellions, or were they happening at the same sort
1: of time anyway? So that's the thing we, we actually still don't know, uh, even after what has been really a quarter century of research on my part, is it could have gone either way. It could have been that Tacky's revolt was an independent revolt which inspired others, or it also could have been, and I think this is in some ways more likely, a revolt that was planned as an island-wide conspiracy, but Tacky's revolt came off too soon. It didn't all happen simultaneously, and so the the colonists were able to suppress Tacky's revolt before the other revolts actually uh, 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 took off and engulf the counterinsurgent forces. Um, We'll never actually know, in fact, because the rebels didn't leave tracks. there are not uh, extant trial records, um, as there are in in the case of some other slave revolts uh, around the Americas. Um, But one thing we can surmise, especially from the revolt in Westmoreland Parish, is that revolt happened simultaneously on a number of parishes on either side of the Hanover Mountains, suggesting a pre-existing network of planning and communication um, that existed before that revolt happened on May 25th. So we can say, at least in the case of the Westmoreland uh, Parish Revolt, that was widely planned. And I think from that, we can we can at least guess, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's a plausible conjecture that this was an island ride revolt planned in advance uh, with Tacky's Revolt happening a bit too soon. And we should see it as part of a wider war. We should definitely see this as part of a wider war uh, in part because, as I said, with an outgrowth of these conflicts in Africa, it was a major battle in the Seven Years' War. It was a, a, a major uprising in the constant violent tensions of slavery, uh, the violent social relations that made slavery work, right? As I said, it was a brutal society, not only because people were dying from overwork, but because in order to keep people regimented, you, need, you needed military discipline on the plantations. So uh, only violent coercion was possible to grow sugar through the 18th century in these slave plantations. So it was a major uprising in that larger subterranean war as well, and also because it anticipated revolts that came after. There was another small uprising in 1763. There was another relatively major uprising in 1765. There was a major conspiracy that planters uncovered in July 1776, that involved many people who were not only Africans, but Creoles, natives born on the island as well, uh, and on and on and on and on. So much so that there was an episode that I uncovered from the early 19th century, where a planter had imported some some brand new recruits from Africa, some brand new captives from Africa. And they rose up and attempted to stab their driver on his plantation, again, in the parish of St. Mary. In the course of corralling them, interrogating them, probably by torture, uh, he discovered something remarkable, which is that all of these Africans who had just arrived on the island knew about revolts that had happened in the 1760s, 40 years before any of the Africans that were in St. Mary Parish at the time had even been born. What that suggests is that people were teaching each other that history on Caribbean slave plantations. Right? that they were keeping that unofficial history alive to teach brand new captives to the island what was possible in Jamaica in terms of an independent politics. That to me is remarkable in part because it suggests a learning process that's intergenerational. It wasn't just a distinct revolt in 1760 and 1761 that was suppressed and then to be followed by others that were utterly distinct. There was, in some ways, a tradition of anti-slavery organizing among the enslaved that I think we haven't given enough account to in our histories. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's not until we framed African history as a part of what happened in the Americas that we really begin investigating how it is that Particular states within Africa, particular wars and battles within Africa, particular trends in trade within Africa had reverberations across the Americas and really uh, uh, the entire Atlantic world. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
0: Enslaved people were sometimes deported to other other parts of the world, and they took this knowledge with them there
1: too. Yeah, in the aftermath of the revolt, so about 500 uh, men, women, and children were executed uh, or driven to suicide in the course of, of the suppression of the revolt. But another 500 or more were exiled, subject to transportation. And when they left the island, they took the stories of Tacky's revolt, with them to other parts of the Americas. So we know that a large contingent went to what was then called um, uh, uh, British Honduras, now the country of Belize. And sure enough, several years later, there was a slave revolt in British Honduras, probably involving some of these people who had been transported uh, transported from Jamaica after Tacky's Revolt and certainly people who knew about Tacky's Revolt. We also know that at least one full shipload of exiled uh, uh, rebels, or these people who had been accused and convicted of rebellion, went to Virginia. And we also know that at a later period, there were people who were exiled and transported to French Saint-Domingue. We know that Buchmann, who probably was not alive during Tacky's Revolt, but certainly might have known about it because he was enslaved in Jamaica, and then became one of the principal leaders of the first major slave revolt of the Haitian Revolution in 1791, we know that, or we can surmise, that he knew about these revolts in Jamaica, And that that knowledge of these revolts informed what he was doing in Saint-Domingue in 1791, leading to the Haitian Revolution, which is another story. But suffice to say that the slave revolution in Haiti uh, subsequently defeated the British occupation, defeated the Spanish, and then finally defeated Napoleon's armies in order to establish the first uh, uh, independent nation state that abolished slavery in the Americas, which was Haiti.
0: Do you think the role of these rebellions in ending the slave trade has been obscured or
1: diminished? Well, I mean, I think that they've been under-emphasized. Let's, let's, let's let's put it generously. Um, insofar as what, what has happened is we have tended to focus on legal abolition uh, and parliamentary abolition, especially in the British Empire, um, at the expense of these movements from below. Now there are a number of reasons for that. One is because oftentimes in history we tend to focus on elite figures. One reason is because it's in some ways easier. They leave more sources for us to ferret through and we don't have to do the kind of extensive uh, mining and guesswork that we have to do with what we often call more subaltern histories. So there's a kind of ease of access to those elite sources that has encouraged us to focus on elite action as the motivators of history. But I think what we also need to do is look at how those elite actions were compelled by people from below, by people acting from below. How abolitionists in some ways were compelled, compelled, engaged with, in touch with, and responding to these slave rebels who didn't need permission from parliamentary abolitionists in order to stage their revolts. So really that allows us to think more geopolitically and in a more integrated fashion about how it is that history works, right? It's not that these elite figures are unimportant, it's just that they too are embedded in a larger world in which the activities of non-elite figures uh, factor significantly. I was really struck uh, by the contrast in your book
0: uh, with the kneeling enslaved figure of some of the abolitionist posters with the kind of people that you
1: describe in this story. Yeah, so uh, familiar to most of us who think about the history of slave abolition, especially slave trade abolition in Great Britain, is that Josiah Wedgwood uh, woodcut figure of the kneeling slave, usually with the caption beneath it saying, am I not a man and a brother? And that is an image and a, uh, a caption that continued on throughout the period of emancipation on into the United States and elsewhere. It's a it's a powerful and famous, and it was an important image uh, in abolitionist literature at the time. But one of the things that it has done, it has obscured black militancy, which predated it, and which made a big difference, right? So by focusing on the, the, kneeling, uh, the kneeling slave, um, appealing right, for his humanity to be recognized, appealing to be recognized as a brother, uh, even in, in Christianity, We've missed out on the independent organizing tra- traditions of these Africans, and those were vital and fundamental. I think it's, it's important to recognize that Tacky's revolt itself, while not leading directly to abolition in Jamaica or the British Empire uh, or, or the United States, had an influence. And it was this, that when British officials considered the costs of the Seven Years' War and went to reorganize the British Empire, they considered Tacky's Revolt as well as what had happened in North America in the Seven Years' War. And their reorganization of the British Empire, tighter administrative control, increasing taxes, is the reorganization that North American colonists revolted against in 1776. So in that way, the activities of these slave rebels was indirect, indirectly contributed to the reorganizations that helped to provoke the American Revolution. More than that, they also helped to stimulate some of the earliest activity to regulate the slave trade. You found in various British colonies in North America, uh, attempts to levy higher taxes on Africans imported directly from the continent, in part out of fear of slave rebels, inspired by Tacky's Revolt. Uh, so there were various colonies in which you had these these higher taxes, uh, and that, those were some of the first anti-slave trade measures in the British Empire. Now, it also did another thing, and, and this is more ambivalent, which is that while some people were sympathetic to the the attempt at freedom by these slave rebels and wrote so in their tracks, helping to stimulate another strain of abolitionist activity, there were many more people uh, who were simply afraid of Africans, saw them as a threat, and equated Blackness with social danger, with threat and violence and even criminality. And so that helped to nurture a strain of anti-Black racism or I would even say anti-Black militarism uh, that continued on long after Tacky's Revolt. When did slavery finally end in Jamaica? Slavery was finally abolished officially in 1834, Uh, on August 1st, 1834, but there was an apprenticeship period in which those uh, formerly enslaved persons were still compelled to work for their their former owners, and that didn't end until 1838. So the date for the emancipation of the enslaved in Jamaica is 1838 rather than 1834, as is commonly assumed, in part because that apprenticeship period was still much like slavery. But the struggle didn't end there, obviously. So the former owners of the plantations and former owners of capital, despite being largely ruined, still tried to press whatever advantages they had, still tried to force the formerly enslaved people into uh, subordinate positions. And so the, the social relations that were born of slavery, those vast inequalities often maintained by violence, those outdated slavery, those, those post-dated slavery, uh, and frankly, um, in an underlying way, we still live with the legacies of that violent inequality today. Do you think that our view of slavery and the international slave
0: trade needs to be much more coordinated, I suppose, geographically and historically?
1: I absolutely think that we should be seeing slavery in a transnational, transregional perspective. And one of the reasons I wrote this book the way I did is to remind people that these black rebels in Jamaica were themselves world historical actors. I think it's far too easy to see slavery as something that happens in in small locations um, and forget that this was an organizing structure for the political economy of the Atlantic world, that without the slave trade and slave plantations, you would have had no European expansion in the Americas. You would have had no British, French, Spanish, Portuguese America, and you would have had no Brazil, Haiti, uh, the United States, Cuba, Mexico, etc. cetera, right? So one has to contend with the history of slavery in order to contend with the way the map looks today. There is no political history of the Americas, and frankly, I would say uh, of Europe either, uh, without contending with that major world historical transformation that was the colonial, the imperial expansion of Europe into the Americas, which was dependent upon the slave trade Uh, and the enslavement of Africans and their descendants.
0: And it's also fascinating for me because it connects Africa so squarely to this story in a really obvious way when you look at it, but actually that gets ignored in a lot of uh, stories like this.
1: Well, I think we're still wrestling with the the bias um, left to us by some of the kind of earliest historiographers um, who didn't think that Africa had a history worth recounting. So the philosopher G.W.F. Hegel, who we often attribute to being one of the founders of Western philosophy, proclaimed that Africa formed no historical part of the world. And historians of the late 19th century, all the way up really into the mid 20th century, didn't really consider Africa as a place that they needed to think through historical transformation and development in the way they thought through it for Europe or even America. Africa was a place where one could study culture, one could study the prehistory of mankind, but historians didn't go there to study major transformations that had consequences in other parts of the world. We're catching up now, um, but we are still kind of emerging from the long shadow of Hegel and that perspective. It seems obvious when one ties these processes together, but we didn't have the framing before. It's not until we framed Africa as a part, and African history as a part of what happened in the Americas, that we really begin investigating how it is that Particular states within Africa, particular wars and battles within Africa, particular trends in trade within Africa had reverberations across the Americas and really uh, uh, the entire Atlantic world. That was Vincent Brown.
0: Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war, is out now, published by Belknap Press.